0: Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Today, this is episode number 319. This episode is one that I'm personally really excited to release and honestly am going to go back and listen to myself because it's a conversation that I recorded quite a while ago. Um, our guest is Hal Blood and he is up in Maine and hunts big woods bucks up there. And if you're unfamiliar with that style of hunting and that hunting culture, we do explain that uh, in this conversation and also relate it to Western hunting. And particularly, we speak with Hal about tracking. What can you learn from tracking about deer? How can you effectively use tracking as a hunting strategy and much more? This came to light for me recently when we were in Kodiak, and it made me think of this conversation. One of the days I was hunting with my buddy Corey Ford, and there was already some snow on the ground leading into this day, but on this particular day of hunting, the forecast was for it to snow continually all day from light to light, and that's what it did, and we ended up going through nearly a couple feet of snow and getting on some fresh buck tracks and truly tracking deer in the snow, which was a ton of fun. I learned a lot. It was interesting to follow those tracks, uh, to observe how deer move, where they move, and ultimately to close the distance for a shot opportunity, which we were so close to doing on multiple times. We were able to track in and get very close to some deer, but just in the cover, didn't get a shot opportunity. But it reminded me of this conversation and honestly, it reminded me that I had yet to release it. This is a conversation I was waiting to release in the fall so that it was more relevant to the timing of tracking and particularly tracking in the snow. And that recent experience uh, made me think of this episode. And honestly, I wish I would have listened to this episode before we went to Kodiak had I known that I would have been in that scenario. That said, though, hopefully you guys pick up something from this episode and honestly, I know that you will. So whether you have experienced tracking or you think that's something you may want to do in the future, or you want to learn about a different type of hunting and hunting culture and apply that to your context, you will know doubt pick up some things from Hal. He is one of those guys that was just great to connect with. Uh, I'll call him with this an endearing term, an old timer, meaning he's been hunting for a heck of a long time. And has so much experience well before a lot of, call it the modern information and technology and equipment and all that. And he's just been getting it done for a long time. And I always love learning from those guys. Before we dive into that conversation with Hal, I wanted to remind you guys that the E X O Experience giveaway is continuing right now in December of 2021. You have just a couple weeks left to enter if you guys haven't already you can go to exomountaingear.com forward slash experience to learn about that. And there's also a link in the show description. That said, many of you guys have already entered, and thank you so much for that. We'll have more announcements coming soon on some of the prizes and things like that. And as some of you know, because you've been contacted and already won some great gear. So again, if the EXO Experience contest is new to you, or if you've been hearing about it but haven't yet submitted, Go to exomountaingear.com forward slash experience and check that out. Hit pause and do that now and come right back. Here's this conversation with Hal Blood. I'm excited to have you on the show today and learn a little bit about you and your history and experience hunting in the Northeast uh, and talk kind of specifically about tracking deer uh, and learn how that can kind of help our audience, whether they're in the Western United States hunting um, mule deer, or elk, you know, hunting skills or hunting skills. And there's certain things we can learn. Uh, from anybody and their experience and you certainly have a lot of experience so I'm excited to to translate that for our listeners today but to kick things off uh, go ahead and just kind of introduce yourself give some personal story background context whatever you want to share there
1: yeah that's great thanks for having me on I uh I'm from Maine grew up in Maine and and uh you know so that's that's my deer hunting experience from the beginning and, uh, that being said, I've, I've hunted lots of places since then, but so I grew up actually in, and more in Southern Maine and ironically, back then in the, back in the sixties, there was very few deer in Southern Maine, all the deer were up in the Northern half of the state, what we call the big woods, you know, the the wilderness in Northern Maine. And, and. Everybody, not everybody, but lots of guys made their pilgrimages north to hunt deer. And even the people from throughout New England and down through, you know, New Jersey and everything. There, was, there wasn't a lot of deer in New England because it was all, uh, it had been farm country, you know, since the settlers came. And it was, they were finally, set, it was reverting back and the deer were starting to come back. But so anyways, deer hunters came to Northern Maine, but I grew up in Southern Maine and it wasn't a lot of deer. And, uh, so it was kind of a big deal to even shoot one. Really. It was, the season was a month long and it was either sex, you could shoot anything, but you know, it was, it was kind of a tough deal to get one. And, but, uh, I managed to squeak out my first one when I was 12 I shot a spike horn when I was 12 that was my first deer and continued on from them I just since the time I was a kid my father would take me I was glad he did you know even with a toy gun when I was little it took me into the woods and and he wasn't really a big experienced hunter I mean he went hunting and he shot probably he probably shot a deer every three or four years maybe or something and and uh And he did some bird hunting and stuff, but I just ended up being kind of crazy about the woods. So that's where I spent my time when I was younger. I mean, even if I was by myself, I would just strike into the woods and was just curious about it. So started learning things kind of on my own and with some guidance. And my grandfather started taking me rabbit hunt when I was 10 and, uh, that was a, that was a good experience. Cause that gave me a lot of experience in shooting at running game. Cause the rabbits were always running when the dogs were driving them by, you know, mm. and, uh, yeah, things progressed. And then I got to go down to the relatives, uh, hunting lodge, which was down on the coast of Maine. And there was more deer there. It was like central Maine and there was more deer than we had. And, uh, I got to hunt down there, and it was still reverted farm country. It wasn't the big woods of the north. But we used to come up north here fishing in the spring, and that's how I kind of found this country in the north. So uh, I went in the Marine Corps when I was 18, and and uh, I was going to actually, my, my goal was to be a game warden, and then when I was getting out, they weren't even taking applications. So I had to do something. So I just, I got a job and one that I hated, but I had to, I had just got married and I had to support my wife. So, uh, but my first vacation, I got the first year I worked there, I didn't have any seniority. So I got, I could get the first week. And then by then there was a three week season in Southern Maine and there was an extra week up North cause it was more deer and it started a week early. So I said, well, I'll, I'll go up north because I knew there was deer there. We always saw them in tracks when we were fishing. And that's how I got to hunting in the big woods up north. And, and uh, one thing kind of led to another. From the But from the time I went, and this is what I, I still explain this to, to people. When the first my first trip up here, I talked my father into going with me we had a little pop-up camper and liked to froze to death but there was something about wandering around in this woods that I didn't really want to hunt in southern Maine anymore I just it hooked me from the first I spent a week here I did shoot a spike horn and it hooked me and that was it I just focused on hunting up here more I mean I still did a little bit down there over the for a few years but Mm-hmm. and I but I tell people that still to this day and after having my you know an outfit in business all the years I found that people that came up north here to hunt they either loved it or they hated it there was no in between I'd, I'd have hunters would leave halfway through their weeks hunt because they didn't like it It were either the they were scared of the woods or uh, there weren't enough deer. I don't know what it, it was just different factors for different people. But so I, I still tell people that you're either going to love it or you're going to hate it, you know, for, in and that, and if you love it it's for various reasons, you know, it's uh, the solitude, uh, the chance of one in a once in a lifetime, big buck, you know, uh, any of them factors, but, yeah. So then, anyways, I I decided I would I, I kind of got the dream after I wasn't gonna decided not to be a game warden. I never it, even did try to apply after they weren't doing. I got I got hooked on the idea of just coming up north and guiding and and having uh, running some you know having camps you know sporting camps and and uh, and doing that. So. I worked towards that is what I did. I I ended up for for 10 years, I was actually a lobsterman because my wife's father was, and he asked me if I wanted to work for him. And I I did a couple of years and then I I bought my own boat. I I did that with the idea I could maybe make a little money to get moving in this direction. So, but we moved up North here. I'd been, I started hunting here in uh, 1980 up North. So that's 40 years ago.
2: Yeah.
0: For guys from the West who, you know, they're not too familiar with whitetail hunting and they probably see what is, you know, most of the whitetail hunting, especially from a commercial kind of industry perspective, you know, so much is focused on crop and agriculture and tree stands and ground blinds. And, you know, if you kind of stereotype whitetail hunting, it is much different than the type of hunting that you were doing. And I think there's a lot more uh, that we can learn from you and the type of hunting that you're doing and apply that to our own hunting than we can from that stereotype of the tree stand hunter. And there's nothing wrong with tree stand hunting. We're just, you know, there there's a different way to do it. And that's right. part of what I wanted to talk to you about today. But so I guess for folks who are unaware, you know, you talk about big woods and kind of that hunting culture, the Northwoods, like begin to even explain what is it like to hunt up there? I mean, you kind of mentioned, um, obviously a timbered area, less deer densities, things like that. But for folks like ourselves who don't have the context and aren't aware and haven't done it, really let us know more what's different from what you're doing compared to that kind of again that stereotype i mentioned of the tree stand hunter
1: well basically we are uh and and don't get me wrong there's people that tree stand hunt up here too and it's an effective way to to shoot a deer here you got to be patient but but if you find the right spots you can shoot nice bucks here from a stand just never was my type of hunting because i just i don't have the patience but the main difference from here, I'd say from out West, and again, I, I, was, I was explaining that it used to be all the deer were in the North and they weren't in the South and it's completely 180. Now, most of the deer in Maine are in the Southern part of the state with as, you know, places as 20 deer a square mile or more. Northern Maine, is, there's places with only two deer per square mile, you know, and some with none. So that's completely flip-flop. So our deer densities quite a bit lower. Now, where I live, because we have a good wintering area here, it's, it's better than that. There's, there's probably at least five, and then in some areas, maybe even as much as 10 deer a square mile in, in, limited, in a limited area. But, so, but the main difference, I would say, from out west is that the woods are so much thicker it's what they call Northern Maine is the Northern boreal forest is what it's called, which is, it means it's a spruce fir forest. And uh, we've got mountains and basically in the Western part of it. But then when you get North, I, I live in the mountains north of me, it starts to level out and it becomes rolling hills and ridges. And then there's a lot of swamp country, you know, low, Spruce bog, cedar bog, but the woods, on average, is very dense. So you don't get to see the animals like you do out west. You don't get to glass them and and then stalk them, and you don't get to do those type of things. Usually, when you have an encounter with a with a with a deer here, it's it's pretty close quarters, and uh, um, so you've got to be, your skill set's got to be a little bit different. You've got to be able to react quickly to that. In other words, you, you're not gonna, you, you gotta be ready to just get your gun going and, and get a quick shot because you might see a deer walking down through the woods and two seconds it's gone. You know, it, it went through a couple of opens, disappeared again. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's probably the main difference as far as the forest goes. Now, that being said, there is uh, clear cuts in places, you know, in the forest with a log. And I know it's the same way out west with some of the, uh, there is places in the west that have pretty heavily timbered areas, Montana is one, Idaho in the mountains, but same thing, when they make clear cuts, then there's places you can see pretty good in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the deer don't live in those open cuts very much, you know what I mean? And especially the big bucks, they're not going to spend much time out there. So yeah. you're hunting them in the woods. So I call it, we go to them. In other words, instead of sitting in a stand and you're all the time just waiting for a deer to to come to you, because the the population is quite a bit lower, we got to cover some ground and go to them, go find, go hunt where they may be, whether it's where they may be holed up or traveling, you know, the certain ways they travel. And the one thing I try to explain to people is our deer here, like a, we talk about the deer and the deer can be everywhere but the the way the bucks travel say if a buck they have bucks have huge ranges they travel here but if we just to do simple math if a buck's got a 10 square mile territory that he lives his life in which would is not very big it's, it's usually the older bucks is way more than that if you took 10 out of that 10 square miles, there's only 10% of that, that he actually ever uses or travels through. You see, so there's, there's certain ways they move about the territory that, that concentrates them through those areas. That's where they lay down their sign, their rubs, scrapes, and all of that sign and where they like to travel comfortably. So that's what we have to find is those areas. I call it like uh, breaking down the big woods. So you, it's overwhelming. If you came up here to hunt and you look at the woods and the denseness of it, you're you you you're like, where am I going to start? You know what I mean? You don't know where to start. So you have to break that big woods into manageable chunks mm. and focus your time in those areas that they use in the mall. I call it the simple way I put it to people is you've got to spend 90% of your time in the 10% area
2: Hmm.
1: in 10% of your time in the 90%. So in other words, which means you're going to spend 90% of your time hunting through the the 10% of the area that the deer, the bucks are using, and then 10% of your time is just getting through the 90% of their area they don't use. You see what I mean? Yeah. Just kind of a different concept, but that's the easiest way I can kind of explain that. And it, when you learn it, it becomes easier. But it, but coming in to it blind, it's not that easy because you have to find the 10 percent define it you know what i mean you have to go f- scout find that sign you know
0: yes yeah no, I, mean, I mean that makes a ton of sense and can translate to guys chasing elk in timbered areas right and it's very similar where you have these bat these vast big sections of land and it's it's finding okay animals are in here in proximity, but as you said, where are they truly spending their time? Where are their movement patterns? Where, where how do they actually use this land? Um, for you, I'm sure there's a combination. You mentioned things like rubs and things like that. So clearly animal sign is gonna be key to identify, okay, clearly the animals are here, they're using this area or have used this area. If you were assessing a new piece of property in general. Have you found that at least for these bucks in your context, are there certain terrain features that they tend to like, or tend to use, you know, things like moving through saddles, for example, do you, are you able to use the lay of the land, um, to begin to identify what, what those deer tend to prefer?
1: That's a good question because They do do that. I call it deer in general, in general, not just the bucks, but, but the deer here in general and in normal everyday life, travel the path of least resistance, whether that means the terrain and it also means the cover, you know, how thick the cover is. So saddles are good. Like if you're looking at the terrain, Yes, I always go if I'm scouting a new area I've never been in. I'll always check the saddles and the ridges, uh, um, the benches, you know, up on the ridges, there'll be flat benches. Usually they'll travel those side hilling on those ridges. Uh, they don't usually take real steep, you know, they're not going to travel in the real steep terrain if they can avoid it. Now they will, if it's the only way to go, they'll have a trail through that. But, but usually just over the years, they've, they've just developed the places they travel and they, they've done it for generations, but it is the lay of the land, the easiest kind of way they can travel through rolling along with the terrain. And then, like I said, if there's, if there's a, a thick cedar bog that's you can't see 20 feet in. They're not going through that in their regular travel pattern. Now, not to say they don't go in there, but if they're traveling from point A to point B, all the deer bypass that thick stuff or places you get uh, a lot of blown down stuff. uh, That's just, you got to crawl through. You don't want to, go through that you know so they they just path of least resistance basically and the way I scout really any new places I'll look at those saddles but my main focus is I walk I walk the water meaning the streams or trickles uh and things like that where it's wet because somewhere there's several reasons I've, I've wrote about it in my books, and it's a thing that I found early on back 40 years ago, that there was these signpost rubs, which are made every year on the same tree. You can count the growth rings in it. And those in this country are made on a, a brown ash tree. It's really, if you looked in a tree book, it'd be black ash. And, uh, you won't have it out, out in the West. It's a more Northern tree. It's more associated actually with the boreal forest. And, uh, but it grows in the wet ground. It's the only place it can grow. It's got to have a lot of water. So bogs, strange spring seat trickles and all that is where you would find that. So I walk, I walk the trickles up the, up the mountains or walk uh the little streams of brooks through the woods and I'm looking for that tree first before I'm even looking for rubs as much I just I'm looking to see if there's any brown ash that filters down because if there's any in a certain water source it's probably going to be the whole length of it because it the seeds spread down the streams and the water and stuff they blow in the wind some but they do And it's, but that's kind of something natural to hear, but what I have found from hunting, I've hunted white tails all over from, from here down into the south and out across Michigan and Minnesota and Ontario and even Montana. There's signpost rubs anywhere. There's mature bucks, but it'll just be on a different tree. So you'd have to find it like in Montana. I'm not sure what it is there. I don't know if I found a lot of them out there, but it's probably on some kind of a, a Jack pine or a Cedar or something out that way. Uh, Most of them here, like I say, are on that brown ash. So I look for the sign, the signpost rubs, because what that means is generations of deer go to that spot. Maybe even they rub the same rub. I found I found signpost rubs that are huge. I've got one that the beavers cut down. I got it here beside me in my cellar. I put it in as like an ornamental post. It had 80 growth rings in it. And it's only, the diameter of it is eight inches.
2: Hmm.
1: Roughly eight inches, six to eight inches. 80-year-old tree rubbed to the center. So that has been rubbed a minimum of 60 years, that tree. So you think about how many different bucks over the years have rubbed that one tree. So that's a spot that bucks always are going to go through, always. So when you find enough of that kind of sign, now you know where the bucks are traveling in, in an area. And you might find – and they're not that common. It's not like they're just everywhere in the woods because there's, there's probably 20 regular rubs or more or 50 regular rubs for every signpost rub you find. But the signpost rubs are the key to where they're traveling because they can make – I mean, obviously, they had to travel once through an area to make a rub. They had to be there. But the signpost rub is, I call them like the spokes of the wheel. Where it all comes together, and different bucks overlap the territories. Right. So you find one here and one there, and you can start connecting the dots in the woods with those signpost rubs. How how the different bucks are traveling, you know.
0: Yeah, that's neat, man. That's very cool. Um, one of the, you know, I've seen you talk about tracking and stalking. And obviously out West, and you talked about this earlier, it's more open country. Guys will talk about spotting and stalking, but clearly for your context in a, a thicker area, you don't have as much visibility. So you rely a fair amount on tracking and then stalking, as you said, going to the animals, not just waiting like an ambush from a tree stand. So I want I wanted to talk about tracking a bit. And I know that a big part of that context for you in Maine is tracking on snow um, which I'm certainly glad to talk about. But just curious, do you do any tracking outside of snow-covered ground at all for the deer that you're trying to uh, catch up to?
1: Yeah, it's very, very difficult because uh, you're going to run into other tracks. So the only way you can track on bare ground is, A, you got to have a great big heavy buck you can distinguish it even in the leaves from the other tracks. They're going to sink in deeper and it's just going to be bigger. And you've got to be able to do it like right after a rain, or maybe it had been snow and it melted off, you know, it flattens all the leaves in the woods Mm. and you really only have about a day to do it because when the sun comes out, it curls all the leaves back up and then everything's like blurry again you know what i mean you just there's no definition but the flat leaves in the hardwoods is is the easiest but then what happens is if they get into a swamp or they even get into the softwood where it's all just needles on the ground the ground is more solid there and they don't even leave a track in that so so it's really it's really really limited now i have i've done it I've caught, I actually one day I caught up to two big bucks in one day on bare ground. The first one I let go, he was a nice buck, but it was early in the season. I was looking for something better. It was a, you know, like I said, a, a nice buck, around a around 200 pound buck, what we call it. Out here, see, we everything's by weight. It's not an antler score, you know. I mean, we do score the antlers, but you're looking at shooting a buck like a trophy buck here is, it's
0: body size. It's it's
1: it's body size, and the, and like the gold standard is something that field dresses two hundred pounds or better, because there's actually a club in Maine. It's called the Biggest Bucks in Maine Club, and uh, but those bucks are limited nowadays. They shoot probably four hundred a year, like that. You know, four four fifty maybe. So you see, that's out of they shoot twenty. Twenty to twenty-two, three thousand bucks lately. In the last ten years, the odds aren't very good. And and out of them, if there was four hundred shot in Maine in a year, three hundred and fifty of them would be from the northern half of the state. You know, the boreal forest, the you know, the Big Woods, because yeah. that's where the bigger deer are on average.
0: Yeah. What's it? Uh, I want to hit pause on tracking and talk about that for a second because i did want to hear more about that and the kind of the phenomenon if you will of i've always heard that myself um you know the big woods deer the big bucks up in uh those northern forests is there what has that contributed to so is there any sort of like kind of subspecies or genetic factor there is it some sort of you know um food source like really why do why are the whitetail up there so big or at least have the probability of being bigger
1: good questions so i i just have my, i have my theories on it but one of them is not theory it was kind of uh brought about years ago i don't know if you ever heard of the. it was a guy named leonard lee rue and he was kind of a naturalist and he he was studied the animals I don't know if he's a biologist but he uh, did a lot of research on the animals in North America and matter of fact when I was a teenager I I got the book and it was called game animals in North America it was by Leonard Leroux. and he had you know he every chapter was a different animal and where you know they're what they ate and their habitats, and they even was a. I remember in the book there was there was be a picture of the United States, and it would be shaded out the area that that animal lived in in the country. And the the specifically on the white-tailed deer, I still remember, and I don't have the book anymore. I don't know where it went, but he he said in that book that there was 23 subspecies of white-tailed deer and cuz everybody's heard about like the, the the cows deer in mexico or koos whatever they call them and the florida key deer and then the virginia white-tail which is the most prevalent so we we all know the subspecies in in but i remember in that book when i was a kid and again that was before i ever came to the north the largest subspecies was the Northern Borealis whitetail. That was the name of the whitetail of the North. And it was the largest subspecies. And he wrote about the reason for it was, was because it's, it's like uh, evolution or whatever you want to call it. They naturally had to adapt to the long winters in the deep snow, they had to adapt a bigger body mass to survive it. And that's the reason they're bigger Hmm. because we have those long winters. Now you get big, heavy deer, they get them out like in Saskatchewan. And I mean, I hunted Western Ontario, which is out by Manitoba big as big a deer out there too, but it's, it's still a lot of Northern Borealis. And the difference was the other thing that I've noted about our deer, the Borealis deer is the feed on them are much bigger. And when I wrote my first book, I had all the sizes and stuff in that. And then when I started hunting other places, we hunted Ontario with the deer is big, the feet aren't. you know, you might get a 250 pound buck out there with, feet here that I wouldn't even bother taking the track on. So, and they are different. You can tell by looking at, at them there, there's different little characteristics to those big deer. But those, I would guess, would probably be like what they call a Dakota whitetail that just migrated north because they're not really native up there. Back Way back, there wasn't deer up there. It was all moose country and stuff, you know, now elk and all of that. Mm-hmm. Terrible. So anyways, the northern borealis whitetail is what was well, always the largest subspecies of whitetail.
0: Cool. I didn't know that's that's interesting. Um so yeah, let's let's dive back into tracking cuz this can apply in oh so many contexts of again, even if guys are chasing elk or mule deer out west or they're chasing blacktails up in the Pacific Northwest. There's plenty of opportunity as seasons progress to hunt deer in snow cover and that can certainly be done in tracking and this is where I feel like we can really learn a lot because again guys may rely on spot and stalk but even thinking of you know take elk for example the, you get into that post rut phase where Bulls tend to go into the timber, they tend to not move as much, they tend to not be as visible, and sometimes tracking can be a very effective way to hunt those bulls, for example. So start with this, What what do you learn or how do you change your approach based on different snow conditions? So, you know, say fresh versus Uh, you know, fresh powder versus snow that's kind of melted and frozen over and is harder, things like that like truly and it doesn't, not necessarily just the snow conditions but anything, kind of that environmental variable the conditions uh, and how does that affect tracking for you?
1: Well I try to tell people the snow conditions and the age is is basically all about aging the track because you want to know when you get on a track was it made Two hours ago or two days ago, right? Because that mm-hmm. matters. And that's the most difficult thing that people have to contend with as a new tracker. Because without the experience to see those, to see what happens to a track in the different conditions, it's all kind of an unknown. So in the beginning, you got to kind of really flub through it and guess. You got to kind of guess, you know. And then you know, you'll, you'll prove things out eventually with enough experience. But I try to teach people that. I've, I've been teaching these, I do these deer, I call them my deer clinics. I do them every spring, like now they're coming up because of the I do it in the spring before the leaves come out, so that the woods looks like it did in the fall. But that's the hardest thing for people to comprehend. And I can't put what I've experienced, you know, everybody has a certain experiences in life and that's imprinted in their mind. So, but I can't take my experience of what I see in a track and put it in someone else's mind. I can always, I can only give them a guideline in the variables because I've had, I've been guiding clients and show them we'll be on a track that's fresh like a, a couple, I call it fresh, it was made, made in the night. Anything made from the previous night to that morning or that day, to me, is a fresh track. But I've showed hunters a track that was a, another day old, right beside the one we're on that's a couple hours old, and they look at it and can't see any difference. I'll point the difference out which may be subtles at times and they can't see it through their eyes see so I don't understand what they're seeing because they're seeing through their eyes and I see through mine and everybody sees things differently but what I have learned is some people have more of a knack for it than others some people get it pretty quickly and others maybe they never can really get it right. You know what I mean? They have to, they have to just continually guess a little more. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you why that is, but all I can tell you is the way to overcome any of that is experience. You know, it's like anything else in hunting, the more experience you get, the better you'll get at it. So I take a track in the morning and I'm looking for one made in the night. And ideally AF, it's only an hour old in the morning. Great. But usually you don't find those because here, again, I'm looking for like the biggest tracks in the woods. Well, you're not going to be able to pick through 10 to find the one that's the freshest because you might only find one of them great big tracks in the day anyways, right? So that's the one you got to take if it was made in the night. So if it was two hours old or 10 hours old, it's just what it is. That's the age of it. And you gotta get going on it. Gotcha. The whole goal is, is to catch up to that buck. So you gotta put your head down and put on the miles until you catch up to it. Because you gotta if it was made at eight o'clock at night where you found the track, that buck's covered quite a lot of ground that night. So you gotta you gotta cover that, that ground to ever get where you're gonna have a chance to have an encounter with him, right?
0: Yeah yeah that's a, a point I kind of wanted to ask you about is, you you mentioned there very specifically, you need to gain ground, right? You need to move faster essentially than the animal was moving to gain the ground because you're starting behind. The question I have is how do you effectively track, kind of read sign, kind of keep your eye on the ground to follow at the same time, keep your head up, pay attention, be aware of your surroundings, and really look for the deer. How do you, I guess, how do you balance that? Uh, yeah, just keeping your eyes down on the ground, looking at the track versus being up, staying aware. Is there anything that you see while tracking, or maybe this is hunch, but you feel, okay, I feel like I'm approaching more closely now, therefore I'm gonna, I'm going to slow down, I'm going to be more aware, I'm going to scan more versus head to the ground focused on the track. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, perfect sense because you want to know when you're getting closer, but the easiest way to explain that is when you're tracking a buck, elk, moose, anything you're tracking, what you're doing, it's written in the snow for you, is his life whatever he did in his life is it the night before in his life really is what we're looking at is written for you in the snow, like a book written right down. All you have to do is interpret it. Right. And so to answer the question is, is when he's walking along in a straight line at a steady pace, you got to go, you got to, you got to move. If he gets in with, Some does and starts fooling around. Well, you got to slow up and see what's going on there. You got to see if maybe he did pick up one of them does and stay with it. But you got to figure that out. So you got to slow down with that. If he stops, the thing, the main thing that usually happens, even even if he does encounter some does, and the the period of the rut determines a lot what goes on there. Early in the season. The does ain't ready, so he usually just runs them around and keeps going. Later in the season, he might pick one up. But the main thing really what happens most of the time, eight out of ten times, or one out of five, is when he's done traveling, he's going to lay down. Before he lays down, he wants to get something to eat they may pick and pick a little bit here as they walk along, but usually when a a big old buck is going to lay down, he puts the feed bag on for a little bit. And you're going to see that written in the snow. He'll go over by a, by a boulder and eat the ferns off it, or he might go over on this tree and eat the mushrooms off it. And he starts wandering right there, feeding around. As soon as I see that, I put the brakes on. And I just stand there and I start looking around because he could it could be already too late. When you come to that, you might have already spooked him because he might have laid down right there. But quite often they'll they'll get that feed and they don't want to lay there because they don't like it. They like to get some elevation. So they'll go up a ridge or get on a high point where they can watch their backtrack. So that's what I look for. When I get to that point and I say, aha, I think he's going to be laying right here. That's when you got to take your time. And I do various things I've written about in my books. And in every situation is different. You're never going to have two exact circumstances. So once in a while, if the terrain's right, I might circle the whole area and see if he continued. If he didn't, I know he's, there, and I can just spend a lot of time looking for them. Uh, most of the time, it doesn't work out that way, so I, what I have to do is just go into like a, a super creep mode, one step at a time, and scan everywhere for, for him, you know, whether it's spotting an antler, or an eye, or a patch of brown, or whatever you need, And, and again, usually if they go up on a little rise or something, you want to just, I like stretch my neck out and and I'm looking up over it as I go. I stretch my neck out. Don't see nothing. Bring it down. Take one more step higher. And it's just a process. You know, that's to me, that's the hunt. See, the whole thing is, is, is like closing the deal at the end outsmarting him is whatever you want to call it and that's the whole hunt when you're tracking because anybody i don't want to say anybody because if you knew you might not you know you can follow a track and stumble onto one and he sees you coming and you're going to see running tracks where he takes off and uh but to actually be able to get a chance at one is a lot more difficult that's kind of a uh you know, there's an art to that. So what, there's a lot of what I call track followers, but there isn't a, there aren't very many trackers. Somebody that's a tracker is able to do the whole thing from A to Z and close the deal repeatedly. Now, again, everybody gets lucky sometimes. And I hear, I hear the stories. It never happens to me, but guys tell me stories. Yeah, I get on this track and I walked up over the ridge and he's standing there looking at me. Well, that never happens to me. So I don't, you know, so some people have got some luck for that, I guess, or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> but uh, but that doesn't happen to those people that often. You see what I mean? You, you Everybody can get lucky, but it takes a lot of practice and uh, patience, persistence, and all of that stuff to be, you know, like a, finish track or polish, you know, be able yeah. to just do it, you know, right. I tell people that if you can hunt, whether it's tracking or still hunting, whatever you got to do, and you can consistently shoot the box here in the woods, the big woods box, everything else is easier. And I don't say it to be bragging about it, but it just is. And if anybody that, any of the trackers out here that have hunted everything else, and I know lots of them that hunt out west. I got a good buddy on our team, Rick Labby. He's got a, he's got a, another house in Wyoming and he hunts there every year for mule deer and elk and everything. And he said, there's, it's, it's easy compared to killing a buck out here. And I know everybody thinks elk are wily and they are, I hunt elk too, but if you can, if you can get to be consistent at shooting a deer out here in the big woods, it's going to make hunting for everything else you want to hunt for a lot easier. Seems crazy. Seems like it might be bragging, but it's not, it just, it is. When I started turkey hunting, a guy, we didn't have turkeys here in Maine until they reintroduced them in the late seventies. So I had one of my clients and lived in Connecticut he invited me down Turkey hunting and I didn't know anything about it, but once he showed me what they do and you know, how to do it, it was, he called one in for me the first year. And I said, then I went back the next year. I said, I'm all set. And it was just easy to, kill for me to kill a turkey because you you once you learn about them and and you've already become stealthy in the woods from hunting deer here right so it it just made it easy that's all Mm. and not to say everything is easy i'm just saying it becomes easier than hunting these deer in the big woods
0: right yeah that's fascinating one of the one of the questions I wanted to touch on, and you really brought this up when you're talking about how the track tells the tells the whole story of the animal, like you reading the track is reading a book of the animal's behavior, potential patterns, almost even thought process in a way. And really what it boils down to is I wanted to ask you the question even before you brought that up of what have you learned about animal behavior from tracking because to me it's a unique experience where you're truly you're not just sitting in a spot and encountering an animal from a distance or seeing that animal when they appear at a specific location but you're essentially following them you're you're going where they go you may discover that they move in an odd place you wouldn't have anticipated or in an odd way uh, that maybe they bed in a place that you wouldn't have anticipated things like that. So um, I know it's a, a broad open-ended question, but just in terms of not only hunting animals, but kind of really learning about them from tracking.
1: Yeah. Well, you, you really hit the nail on the head because everything you said, you know, all the things you said they might do, they do do every, you know, and, and unexpectedly things you'd like, I've quite often said, I can't even believe he did that, but they do it. It's, it's things you see that you would never see from a tree stand or you'd never realize they go there. There's a lot of times, you know, and I still will encounter things and I've tracked literally thousands of bucks over the years and I'll still get on one and he does something and I'm like, I never seen that before. (laughs) <laughs> or I never seen one go in a place like that before. So you're right. It, and and, and it, I, I hear these people, hunters out this way, say things that are ridiculously stupid. And But when somebody says they always do this or they always do that, that's when I close my ears. I tell people, don't listen to those people if they say these deer always do certain things because they don't. So you're right. By following them, they just, there's lots of things they do. But the one thing they take, where they take you is, is where they travel. And that's how you learn to get through the woods, certain places. And that's where, see, we don't always have snow. So those are the places I go and I call it still hunting. You would call it stalking out there, but I call it still hunting because you're not Stalking, I guess, would be more, I, I always interpret as if you already spotted something and you're trying to stalk in on it, but still hunting is just, just moving along in an area where you know, where you hope there might be a deer you can encounter, you know what I mean?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I find those places, obscure places by following a buck to them. That's how you find most, most of the signposts. Cause a buck takes you to it, you know, you know, rub on it. Or maybe he won't, maybe he just goes by it. But so yeah, they do all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, I've had them going up on these mountains and stuff and steep ridges and come out to the edge of a, like a cliff that's all like spruce on it and just literally jump off the cliff. Right down through the fir trees, you see the snow all fell off the trees where they just jumped right through all the fir trees and maybe land 20, 25 feet down below and just keep going. They just they were up there looking for a doe and there wasn't one there, and that was the quick their quickest way out of there to where they wanted to go. They just jump off, really, and they just whoosh down through the trees yeah crazy stuff yeah crazy stuff they'll you'll track them out to a uh a pond what what, what i would uh, we call them ponds but a lot of people would call it a lake it might be a mile across but to us they're ponds, and uh swim across they just walk down to the edge of the lake and the track disappears in the water. Cause they swam across it. Well, that things like that is, they do it because that's how they've escaped predators, namely coyotes. Here's what we have for predators. You know, they'll do things like walk in a stream or a little trickle of water. And you can't see the track because it's wet or early in the season. It might be a, it might just be a, a skitter rut where a skitter pulled trees out years ago and it's wet because it's in soft ground, but because it's early damp snow and the ground's warm, there won't be any snow in it. But they'll get in that and they'll walk up through that water until the end of it and then keep going. And you, you look at it, and most people in normal way of thinking would say, that was pretty smart of that deer. He walked up there so I couldn't see his track. Well, that's not really why he was walking there. He walked in that water because that's how they escape predators. See, that's they get in the water and then see if a coyote's following their track and they walk in the waterways and get back out, when the coyote comes with the water, he's got no idea where that deer went now. He's got to spend a bunch of time trying to find that track again. So it's just things like that when you when you look at it you you're reading what happens in their life and you go aha I see why he did that I see why he did this or that or something else you know what I mean So yeah kind of crazy but you lots of things they do like that
0: Yeah how how does the wind play a role in your pursuit as a tracker um so say you you know it's this scenario where you turn a track in the morning that's you know fresh right so again as you mentioned maybe from this prior night but it's headed in a direction and in a way where the wind is now kind of pushed from your back so Uh, Are there times when you just completely abandon a track, no matter how good it looks based on the wind, or do you kind of circle around that and hope to pick it up with wind in a better direction, you know, further down the track, if you will. I'm just curious how that comes into play for you.
1: Now the good question, because most people are used to uh, sitting in the stands where they, their scent is in a stationary area I mean, they're stationary, so their scent radiates, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When you're in the woods, your scent's not radiating. You're moving along, and it's dissipating as you go. It's not staying in any one spot. So the wind the and wind tracking is irrelevant until that last close in the deal time comes. That's the only time it's relevant because... As opposed to being maybe, if you're relating it to out west, where, like when you elk hunt, well, you got open country in the wind. I know the breeze can take the scent a long ways across the open country, right? Might go to the next ridge. It's not going to do that in the woods. There's too many trees and stuff for it to infiltrate before it ever gets 50 yards. You see what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm the wind just just doesn't go that far in the woods and then again in in this woods because of the ridges the trees and everything there is no there is there's a prevailing wind which is typically northwest here but there is no prevailing wind in the woods you can you can stand in one spot and that wind will hit you in four different directions in a minute it wisps all around different ways so we really don't have to be concerned about the wind until you get to a point where you think you're near the buck Mm -hmm. you see Mm
2: -hmm.
1: so that's when i check it if i get to if i get to a point and i'm like he's right here yes i'm going to check the wind because that might determine if i move off downwind of the track a little bit just in case he might've gone up and moved downwind and then he smells me coming up over. But, but that's the only time, I mean, I've tracked many a bucks that will put the wind in their back. Once they know something's behind them, they'll purposely put the wind in their back. So you, you know, they smell you. And you can see that written in the snow because they'll be walking along kind of a normal walk. Then all of a sudden you'll see where they take a couple of jumps and walk a little faster. It's because you got too close to them. They know you're behind them, but what are you going to do about it? Eventually he can't walk in the with his back to the wind forever because he's going to go up a ridge or he's going to, go around a corner or do something, right? You can't walk in a straight line through the woods. So I just keep going until the wind's not in his back anymore. If you keep on him, eventually you'll get the odds in your favor again or whatever. You see what I mean? Yeah. But I never give up on a track. No, never. Okay.
0: When you talked earlier, right, there's the guys who follow a track. And then there's the two, the true trackers. And there's clearly the difference between that, those final moments, right. And essentially creating that shot opportunity and taking advantage of that and not busting the buck when he is within range. So anything else that helps you kind of complete a stalk effectively. And what I'm really getting at is like from a very pragmatic level have you found that you walk in a certain way to reduce sound? Are you wearing certain things to remain stealthy? Like those, those final moments, those little things that can make a difference that you've learned over decades of experience, what comes to mind?
1: Yeah, all that matters. You have to, In that, in that again, I think some of that goes back to once you can, once you can shoot bucks here consistently – everything else is easier because you've learned all of those things that are key. So it all starts with yes, yeah, so obviously you got to be quiet because you're not going to you're not going to get within 50 yards of a bedded buck making noise. Snapping sticks. You've got to learn how to walk through the woods and that was a good point you made because most people don't know how to walk in the woods they walk in the woods like they're walking down the sidewalk just clippity-clopping along that's how most people walk they don't put their feet down quietly so i walk i just had somebody i was had there was a guy on the phone that listens to our podcast he was I didn't think of it that way, but he said, I watch you walk. He said, I watch you Brutus video of yours all the time. He said, and I watch how you walk. He said, you walk like an Indian. And I didn't really know what he meant by that, but I guess he meant the deliberate way I walk, putting my feet down. He could see it from the camera's view from behind me. You see what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. And I do walk like that. And I try to teach people that. The clients I guide and stuff like that, the ones I teach, I try to teach them that because I I, the only way I can relate it to people is, it's for me, my walking gait is like, I envision it's like pedaling a bicycle. So my feet are going up and around. They're not Mm -hmm. dragging. I pick my feet up. And they're like, it's like a steady flow of like, if you visualize walking, but look at it as the pedals, you're pedaling a bike around. You see what I mean?
0: Oh, totally. Yep.
1: And then my feet, I hit the ground pretty much flat footed and I don't put all my weight on the ground on one foot. So as my foot hits the ground. With one foot touching the ground, both feet are touching for that second. And then only for a split second, got to move my other foot forward. But I get my foot forward before my full weight is actually on the ground. If you, I don't know if you can really get that. It's almost like paddling along, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's how I walk through the woods. And the other thing you have to learn in this woods, because it's dense woods, We have a uh, a humid climate. Things rot in our woods, like it's not everything's not dry. So there's always limbs and stuff, blowdowns in the woods, and there's always dead, dead limbs that have fell out of the trees. Lots of stuff on the ground to snap. And you've got to learn where to put your feet as well. A lot of rotten logs on the ground. People want to step on a log because it's easy right a, a log laying on the ground they step want to step up and over it well it crunches you know what i mean you step on it and it that makes good, that good. noise you can't do that and in i say you can't you can if you know the log's not rotted but most people again that comes with experience i've learned what I can step on and what I can't pretty much, you know, once in a while, you're always going to make mistakes. But so that's, that's all something you've got to learn kind of with your own experience too. You've got to work it out yourself, you know, but Mm -hmm. you have to be like that. And the other part of your question was, was what you're wearing. And that's the key is you, you have to wear quiet clothing, and, and there's a lot of clothing now. And I've, since I'm an old guy, I've come through it. Because when we was a kid, the only thing we had to wear was wool clothes. If you look at any of the old time pictures of hunters, they all wore wool. And something changed in that. Probably that started probably in the 80s and stuff. 90s, a lot of it came about the big camo craze. Well, we, we, we wear the checkered wool jackets. That was the original camo, you know, because it used to be solid red wool was the was most of what people wore. It might be solid green, but then they put the checkers in it, and that was, that was for camo. It broke up the pattern, right? So checkered wool is the original camo pattern there's so many choices in clothing now. People's heads must spin and they all claim to be, I remember when it first started coming out these different materials, they were trying to get the market so they compared them to wool. It's like wool only better. And they hooked a lot of people on it. And there is a lot of things that are quiet, like polar fleece is quiet enough. And that's that's an alternative in the dry weather polar fleece is really nice and warm as well but the other stuff is really not all these other things they may like uh if you rub it it might feel quiet if you just like rub your hand on it but if you're going through thick woods where the things are uh we call them whips you know the saplings and stuff are slapping against you Mm -hmm. it's stuff is noisy it'll go whop, whop 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 snip snap whop you're not going to get near anything with clothes like that in the dense woods. See, we're, we're talking about trying to get in close. That stuff's all great if you're out in the open country or, you know, in the, the open timber of the West, you know, elk hunting. You can get away with that. You're not going to get away with it here. There's no way. You're not going to get away with it. You've got to have warm clothes Uh, because it's wet so wool there's no alternative to wool that's why we designed our own and we sell it on our site because we're trying to get people back back into the old school stuff but if they want to learn how to be a tracker or a hunter in this big woods you can't shortcut what we call the system there's i developed a system for all of it and you if you try to shortcut the system. It's gonna it's like uh taking percentage points away from you. You know what I mean? For everything you don't do. Yeah. Well you you're taking ten percent off. But if you don't have the right clothing, you're taking fifty percent right off your hunt to begin with before you get going. So why would you wanna do that, you know? Be at a fifty percent handicap.
0: What is uh how would you break down shot opportunities? So you're you're obviously tracking deer. You know, there's different scenarios that run through my head. Have you essentially tracked up on a deer that may be bedded? You track and get within shooting range on a deer that's on its feet but unaware. You track where the deer becomes alerted and maybe is fleeing or at least alert. Just in your experience, both personal hunting as well as a guide, how would you say the percentage of those shot opportunities break down of like yeah probably maybe you know 10 percent of the time it's a bedded deer but you know the majority of the time it's an alert deer i'm just curious how that really um breaks down overall
1: um overall or uh, well, while tracking
0: well while tracking right so uh think of a a hunt where you're actively tracking a deer and it ends up with a shot opportunity. What does that shot opportunity look like?
1: Most of the time, if I had to put in a percentage and again, this is going to, I'll talk about me, but everybody's different because everybody's at a different skill level. Cause uh, the better your skill level, the more times you'll, you'll, you'll see one first, right? You're going to get an Mm -hmm. opportunity. He's either standing there or maybe laying down and you get that opportunity, but that's, that's on the highest skill level. But most of the time, and still I do probably at least half the time, my opportunity is going to be a running shot when he goes, either Mm -hmm. saw me first saw movement, heard something, whatever it is. And that's, that's for me, half the time what happens. The other half the time I either, I'll either see him standing or see him in his bed or laying down or something. So it's kind of 50, 50 that way for me. But for most people starting out, it's probably going to be, uh, 99% 99% they're going to see one running, you
2: know? <laughs> right? Right.
1: <laughs> and, and then you got to improve your skill level. So, yeah. so, so in the short opportunity is, is a, it's a good question because most people, when you watch all the, like the TV shows and people stand hunting, I, it drives me crazy sometimes that you can hear them waiting, you can see them or you can hear the cameraman or wait, wait, wait. If there's a blade of grass out in the field, they don't want to take the shot. You know what I mean? And I just, I I just shake my head. I'm like, you ain't going to shoot very many deer that way. You ain't going to shoot any up here that way. Cause you never, I mean, the odds of ever seeing a deer out in the open, perfectly in the open is pretty rare. You know, some part of his body is going to be obscured. Hopefully his whole shoulder is not. Still, you gotta, you can't count on it, so you have to be prepared to shoot quickly and accurately. So, you might have to shoot between a three inch gap between two trees and shoot them in the neck or the shoulder, wherever you have for a vital, you just might have to do that. But if you if you practice and you, you're good with your gun, you know, your gun, and it's, it's not a problem. It's just, you don't wait for him to step out. If you wait for a, a buck to step out, that's 30 yards from you. and He's alerted. He probably isn't going to step out. His next thing is going to be, is, is going to be jumping away from you. You see what I mean? So when you get your opportunity, you got to take it. And I don't just fling lead. I don't, I don't shoot unless I think, I can kill the deer, but I do shoot a lot of deer on the run, but it's just because I'm, I'm able to do it. I mean, I've done it my whole life. I've shot thousands of rabbits on the run. That was my training ground for running shots. And I, to me, I just, I don't care if it's a running shot or a standing shot. It's the same shot to me. The only difference is when it's, when a, when a buck is running, from me, I have to. I can't just, I don't have the same perspective all the time because that two inch slot or three inch slot between two trees is happening fast because he's going between trees all the time. And you just have to pick the biggest opening and shoot when he hits the big openings. And then half the time you hit little, little sticks and things you didn't see, but that's part of it.
0: What are coming distances? I'm like as we're talking about this and envisioning the woods, I'm thinking, you know, thirty to fifty yards would be frequent, but I could be totally wrong there.
1: Yep, that's pretty that's pretty close. Yep. 30 to 50. The furthest the furthest buck I have ever shot, and this it's kind of ironic because I've hunted in Montana in the woods. We don't hunt in the open, we hunt in the woods up in the mountains there, and Ontario with his clear cuts. The furthest buck I've ever shot, I paced it at 120 paces, and it was through the open hardwoods, and it was up here. That's the furthest I've ever shot. I shot another one. I did never go back and pace it. It was down over a ridge that was probably 100. I probably shot a couple out at that distance, but – Most of them are close, you know, reasonably close. And I've shot, I've shot several like laying in their beds at close range, 19 paces, things like that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You never know. You know, you, you got to take what's presented to you and you're never going to know what it is till you get presented. Right. Yep.
2: Yeah.
0: Man, how this has been so good! I could I could ask you questions all day, but I want to respect your time. But let me let me let's wrap up with this question. Uh, you mentioned prior that folks either tend to love this style of hunting or hate it, and I imagine that part of the reason for that is the low animal densities and maybe few encounters that you could have over the course of like say a week long hunt and maybe seeing a handful of deer on a good hunt I would imagine Um, and that translates to all types of hunting when essentially things aren't going your way when you're not seeing the animals you expected no matter what the context you know it's easy for guys to kind of get frustrated or give up or what have you but just touch on that like in your experience the best hunters the most successful hunters the hunters that stick with it how do they deal with lack of encounter and kind of stay in it.
1: The experienced hunters know that they just have to put themselves in the right place. And then the timing is the next thing. You know, we can't control the timing. So you got to, you just have to hunt where, you know, there's deer or bucks, you know, you, you have to hunt that sign. You've got to hunt with his deer And then you just have to know in your mind that the law of averages is going to catch up to you. It always does. And I I don't mean it's going to catch up to you in a week or two weeks, but it's going to catch up. If you keep doing and hunting where you know you need to be and you're in the sign and you know, there's deer there, it's just going to catch up to you. And, And all the successful hunters I know that's, they know that and it's, I guess what it boils down to is it's just being persistent because being persistent is going to allow you to overcome any of the other shortcomings, whatever it is, you know, lack of deer, uh, you know, you might not be able to walk as far as somebody else or whatever is. It doesn't matter if you keep at it and you do, what you know you're supposed to be doing, you, it's going to catch up. It just has to. I mean, I've gone, I've gone out many years and shot a buck the first day, the second day, the third day of the season. I've had other years where I never shot a buck until muzzleloader season. You know, the fifth week into it. But I know the law of averages will catch up. You know, I get on. You know. Two years ago, was a good example, I hunted hard because most of my, most of my hunting career up here, I've been guiding too. So I didn't have a lot of time to hunt for myself. I get a day here, two days there, you know, if, if my hunter got his buck in the middle of the week, I'd have a few days at the end of the week to hunt. That's how I did it for well 25 years. And then, you know, now I can, I still guide a couple hunters a year, but I take enough time for myself that I've got, you know, I've given myself a better chance to be uh, a little, I I guess I'd call a little more relaxed about it, you know, and more I can be a little more picky about shooting or I can bide my time a little bit more for snow and things like that, you know, Mm -hmm. but two years ago that buck I shot, Brutus. It's on our YouTube thing. The video, if anybody wants to see it. But, but uh, I had guided uh, two weeks, the first two weeks, and then I hunted the last two weeks of our rifle season, and seen bucks, tracked many a bucks. We had a lot of snow that year. Shot at another buck, gave him a haircut, and then. The next to the last day of that loader season, which would be five weeks into it. And I'd been every day in the snow every day for five weeks. And I killed that buck on the next to last day of the season. So that's the way it goes sometimes, right? I didn't give up. There was a lot of reasons I could have, because I'll tell you, I was... I was pretty well wore out because I'm not a spring chicken anymore. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be 64 in a couple of weeks here. So, but I still go as hard as I can. But I don't give. It's one thing I don't do is I don't give up. And anybody that doesn't give up are the ones that are going to succeed
0: at it. You know. Amen to that. That's awesome. Al, uh, before we let you go, just to wrap up, what are uh, resources if guys want to learn more? I know you have a podcast, YouTube, books, like there, there's a lot out there that uh, you've graciously shared. So, what are some of the places to go check that out?
1: Well, um, the main, the starting point, I guess, would be basically our Facebook page or our, or our website. It's just, it's bigwoodsbucks.com. And then it's Bigwoods Bucks YouTube channel you can Google big woods bucks and probably my smiley face will come up there on the first page, you know, but, uh, and then that, that'll show people if they want to buy a book or a DVD or just go on the, you know, and see some of the stuff on YouTube. And then there's within the website, there's a hunting club I have in there that it's all my content in there: articles, short films, or my hunts, you know, a lot of myself filmed. I've done a lot of that. It might be just a day, it might be a one day hunt, but it shows people what goes on, you know? Mm. So that's it. And then the podcast is, you know, the Big Woods Bucks podcast. And that's, you can get that any way you get your podcast, you know, your iTunes and your Stitcher and all of that stuff.
0: Well, Hal, I I thoroughly enjoyed this. I've both learned from it and was kind of entertained hearing your stories and experience. So thanks for sharing the time with us.
1: Yeah, I was glad to be on. And uh, maybe I inspired a few of them Western hunters to give it a try.
0: Well, that's a wrap, guys. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Don't forget to check out those resources that Hal mentioned if you want to learn more including his own podcast, YouTube channel, and website. As always, guys, appreciate you tuning in. If you haven't yet, consider leaving a review or rating for the show in your podcast app or possible. That would help us tremendously. And just share it with a friend. If there's someone who can benefit from this podcast and the content that we're producing, and it would help them be a more effective hunter, it would be great if you would tell them about the show. Otherwise, hit that subscribe or follow button, and we'll talk to you soon.